Hello, this is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. A quick plug before we start, my folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. And now, back to your regularly scheduled RetroTube. Welcome to RetroTube, the podcast in which two pals from Lancashire and Lincolnshire dissect each other's favourite and not-so-favourite TV shows from the 60s, 70s and 80s. This week we're looking at a little-known science fiction show from the mid-1960s. It's Doctor Who. a now-forgotten tea-time show about an old man and his time machine, joined on his adventures by a collection of whiny teenagers and the occasional schoolteacher or two. A ratings flop, the show failed to grab the public imagination and fizzled out after a miserable 26 years. So, Heather, this is 60s TV, this should be one of yours. Why isn't it? Tell me about your relationship with Doctor Who. I don't have one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I feel that um doctor who is probably my prisoner right i think that's that's how that's how i can describe it um because Pete, everybody everybody's so shocked when they're like oh obviously you've been to doctor who <laughs> <laughs> yeah no you love there. 60s tv so therefore you'll be a huge doctor who fan it's like everybody thinks oh my goodness you're really into the 60s and you're scouse so you must be a massive beatles fan and i'm like oh, oh son <laughs> <laughs> not, not that I have anything against the Beatles. Of course, I am very, no, very fond of them. I mean, you them. secretly like I them. I, I don't even secretly yeah, you like just don't them. Like I, to admit I, it. I openly like them. They're just not my favourites. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, no. Which I, I think is fair enough. I didn't really know anything about Doctor Who, to be fair, because I think it finished when I was small. Um, and yeah, five or six. My mum my and dad. In fact, all of my family are not into sci-fi at all. So, uh, at the age of at the age of little, uh, I, I, we just wouldn't have watched it. So, it was just never a thing that was in my consciousness. And then it came back in two thousand and whenever five. And um, I tried to get into it when when David Tennant was was the Doctor because you know he's a nice chap. Uh, it just nah. No, it's a very different thing. It wasn't. It wasn't that like. I had purposely avoided the classic Doctor Who. It's just that I'd never, it had never been repeated as far as I knew. And hmm. um, I just did, I just never come across it. It was just, it was, it hadn't passed hmm. me. It hadn't permeated. No, no. Yeah. Um, I still think, because I've, I, I've been telling you about Doctor Who for a long time, and I still think there's an element of stubbornness in there. And it, there it, is. you are somebody that holds out on things. So it took, I you did. know, the Prisoner is a fairly recent thing for you, and um, you held out on Star Trek in a long time, didn't you? And that's a I, I sort did, of prime sixty show. It, it is, it is, and that was. You see, this is this is all because of my phobies of people. The Prisoner was my phobia of Patrick <laughs> you do, McGowan. You, do, you take against people, don't you? I, yeah. I, I I have two settings when it comes to human beings. I love them, <laughs> or I hate them, and 
I don't love very many of them. So yeah, I had I've got a phobia about Patrick McGowan, massive phobia about William Shatner. Both of those are very understandable. I guess I'm holding out really about Doctor Who just because I mean there is also an element of oh no, if I get into this, I'm going to get into it and I will do everyone's head in so much <laughs> apart from you if i got if i really got into doctor oh, yeah. who you'd be like it's christmas it's christmas morning um <laughs> <laughs> so uh, i'm really sorry that i haven't i mean i did try i have i have tried um now that they're all on on britbox not that we're being sponsored by anybody because we really really aren't but if you'd like to please do um <laughs> we need all the help we can get this podcast has been brought to you by poverty <laughs> Uh, I did start watching the William Hartnell ones, and I love mm. them. So, I mean, I, I and then when we started, we decided that we were going to do the podcast. I stopped watching them because I knew that we were going to come back to them. I didn't want to like spoil things for myself. But uh, yeah, this is this is a, a one that I haven't seen. Yeah, so I'll talk a bit about um, Doctor Who because on this podcast, we're generally either treating shows. Individually, so we'll cover the entire show in one episode, like The Prisoner, for example, or with Blake Seven. When it's when it's markedly different from series to series, then we can do one episode per season. But I think that even that doesn't cover Doctor Who, because I think of all TV shows ever made, it's the most diverse in terms of style and content and overall texture and atmosphere. So a show from 1963 is going to be nothing like a show from 1989. But even within seasons or we even within the run of a particular doctor the shows can be very very different so um my plan for doctor who is to treat each different story as its own separate show so uh we're doing the time meddler today yes we uh, are and we're treating that as its own thing so in a few weeks we will do another doctor who story and treat that as its own thing I've picked this one for a couple of reasons, although actually it's slightly more of a significant uh, episode, a uh, significant story than I'd anticipated, which I'll get to in a minute. But I mainly picked this because, A, it's at the other end of the William Hartnell era. So you've seen the very first two Doctor Who stories. You've seen the Caveman one and the Dalek one. Yes. It's not from the opposite. It's about the, the, the middle or slightly after the halfway point of the William Hartnell era, but it's it's from a very different part of it. So it's it's contrasting from the, the shows you've already seen. And I also just picked it because it's a fun one and it's one that I have good memories of and I hadn't seen it in a while uh, so it's it's a nice, breezy, enjoyable one to kick off with, I think. But actually, um, watching it again, because it's been a long time since I've seen it, it's a lot more of a significant episode than I'd anticipated. That is the dematerialising control, and that over yonder is the horizontal hold. Up there is the scanner, those are the doors, that is a chair with a panda on it. Sheer poetry, dear boy. Now please stop bothering me. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about the Time Meddler? What's the premise? Um, well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, Peter Butterworth is the monk and he was Sergeant B-Day in Carry On, Don't Lose Your Head and a lot of other Carry On ah, films. So they've both been, um, been Carry On sergeants because William Hartnell was a Carry On sergeant as well, wasn't he? Oh, well then, there you go. 
that's probably how the, how they choose the um, the, <laughs> the Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yes, he is meddling with time. He's mm. the time meddler. That's that's it. That's that's all I've got to tell you. It's him. He's doing it. <laughs> that's pretty much the the title of the. Uh story pretty much sums up the plot doesn't it it's it's uh they're in 11th century england waiting for the norman invasion uh but there's this mischievous fellow although it really does my head in mm. can i just i just need to get this this off my chest All right, then, let's get this out of the way. right it's 11th century england it's 1066 it's like yes. a fortnight before the battle of hastings <laughs> yeah. and stephen continually refers to it as the 10th century. Yes, I... They both do, don't they? Stephen and Vicky both refer to it as the 10th century, I think. Which, yes, that was annoying me. I don't know if I they just... I didn't notice Vicky doing it. Vicky can do no mm. wrong. She's a secret scouser. <laughs> ah, you've preempted one of my notes. We have a... Yes, we have our secret scouser <laughs> of the uh, of the show. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a note that you won't have. Mm. I don't know how to say his surname. And I really hope his name isn't Peter Purves. Because no, Peter Purvis. That's just wrong. Peter Purvis. Peter Purvis is from New Longton. And oh. I spent a lot of my life living in Longton and Much Hill, which are the two adjoining wow. villages to New I Longton. I didn't know that. Uh, so he's a very local lad to me. Yeah, I actually have... Uh, one, of, one of my notes is that we have uh, three secret northerners. So we have, yes... Um, Peter Butterworth from Cheshire. Oh, four then. I hadn't looked him up, but um, Althea Charlton, who plays Edith, is from Middlesbrough. Oh, she's so basically, more it's just full of northerners. Both on the other side. So northern. Mm. This is probably why I enjoyed it so much. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I finally knew what was going on. <laughs> but we have, um, by coincidence, and this is totally unplanned, um, last week's episode of RetroTube, we looked at uh, Randall and Hopkirk Deceased, which was created by Dennis Spooner. And The Time Meddler was written by Dennis Spooner. And it's one of the few Doctor Whos that he wrote. Yes. And that's probably another reason I enjoyed it so much, because it was it, it was very Spooner-like. It would not have been out of place as a Randall and Hopkirk adventure. No. And he's known, of all the Doctor Who writers, he's known for his comedy romps. Yes, and that is definitely what this was. Yes, it's very light, isn't it? It's light of touch. Not, It's not it insubstantial, is. but it, it has a very light touch to it. And we also, uh, it's a return for Ron Grainer, who composed the music, uh, and we also met him in The Prisoner and Tales of the Unexpected. So this I kind of count as half Ron Grainer because the actual music itself was created, as most people know now, but it was sort of one of the... She was, something of an unknown figure until the, probably the last 10 or 15 years. But Delia Derbyshire, who's one of the early pioneers of experimental electronic music, um, she actually created the theme tune. And Ron Grainer himself, he was so impressed by what she'd done, he wanted her to have co-credit uh, as a music composer, but the BBC wouldn't allow it, which is very naughty of them. And the director of this episode is Douglas Camfield. I don't know if he's a, he is known to you at all, but he is generally amongst... Doctor Who fans known as being the best Doctor Who director. Not necessarily the easiest to work with by all accounts, but he generally, his were generally the most visually interesting. Right. I, I don't think I know him. The thing I did really like about this episode, that it's very horrible histories, very horrible histories-esque. Right. It's about Vikings who invade, who invade monks in Saxon England. I could honestly just sort of, sit there and, and I was I was assigning 
dialogue to various members of the horrible history <laughs> team. Uh, it was it was very much a thing. Yeah. I would I kept there's a particular sketch where Ben Wilbond and Larry Rickard are Vikings who storm a monastery, and Jim Howick is the monk, and he's just in the middle of writing like a, a history of of what's happening to to the area that they live in and uh ben and larry are like oh what are you doing he's like i'm writing i'm i'm, I'm just i'm just writing what's happening and uh i'm all so all i could hear was ben saying write about my biceps <laughs> <laughs> and, and jim going his rippling biceps and then Larry going, I want to be seven feet tall. Write me as seven feet tall. I'm seven feet tall. So that that was literally all I could think of the whole way through. Well, that's a nice, a nice happy thought to attach to yeah. this. Ben will want biceps. I'm happy. Everyone involved in this seems to be having a great time, and particularly um... they really do. William Hartnell and Peter Butterworth they they work well together. They seem to have a nice chemistry, and they're they're. Having some they larks. Do. There, there is definitely japes going on. And Maureen O'Brien and Peter Purvis have a very good chemistry as well, and they work well together. And they sort of. I think they do. Yeah, yeah. What I liked about them uh, as a as a pairing is that, uh, and this is generally a thing for Doctor Who, but you possibly wouldn't see it so much in other TV shows, is that there was no romantic frisson at all. They were very much brother and sister. They were kind of like a squabbling brother and sister. There was a lot of squabbling. Mm-hmm. But it was all very good-natured. And she, like, she was, she wouldn't allow herself, she stood up for herself. She wouldn't allow herself to be bossed around by the man yeah. just because he's a man. She's very much like, how about you do what I say for a change? And that kind of thing. Yes, and... I like that. So he 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 was trying to assert his masculinity, but she was having none of it. I think often 60s Doctor Who has a bad rep for being sexist, but when you actually watch it, sometimes it is, but often it's not particularly. Yeah, I can imagine that. Anyway, on to, on to the story. Yes. Now, when it, when the story first starts, there's, uh, there's this new lady there, and uh, I, I didn't know at the time, her name's Vicky, um, the first thing she says is that she'll miss Ian and Barbara, first Susan and now them. Yeah. What the hell happened? <laughs> what happened to Ian and Barbara and Susan? What happened? Well, you'll have to find Are out. Are they dead? She would, she would be miss, I think she would be missing them more if they had just died the previous episode. I mean, honestly. <laughs> uh, so I, I, was, I was quite... Um, I, I, was, <laughs> I was quite upset, to be honest. <laughs> so you've seen 11 episodes of, from the very first the very beginning of season one and here we're at the very end of season two this is the final story of season two so there's been a bit of a turnover of cast so we have a different woman in her early 20s pretending to be a teenager and doing the requisite um teenager acting yes but actually i like vicky a lot more than susan i think that the and this is nothing against Carol Ann Ford, but I think the production team learned some lessons susan spent so much of her time just shrieking and panicking and going oh grandfather and just like in a point of hysterics the whole time, and so they've made Vicky a lot more contained and assertive and calm, uh, and she's just having a bit more fun. Yes, a lot she's less just enjoying drippy. things a bit more. She's far less drippy, so she is uh, probably my favourite William Hartnell companion. And obviously, it really helps that she's Scouse. It really does, yes, because 
You can take a Scouse girl anywhere, and she will not <laughs> yeah. take any nonsense. Uh-huh. She has Jodie Comer cheekbones. That's how you can tell she's Scouse. Exactly. Exactly. We've all got them. Yeah. It's the, it's your national... It's not a nation, is it? What is it? You you, you act like it's a nation. It is a nation. <laughs> it is a nation. Little nation state inside England. It's your national feature, is the, is the Jodie Comer cheekbones. You gave this ship a name just now. What was it? TARDIS. T-A-R-D-I-S. It stands for Time and Relative Dimensions in Space. Idby. What? Idby? Hmm. I-D-B-I. Yeah? It means I don't believe it. You'll see. You'll see. I spotted a potential easter egg in here and possibly an unintentional easter egg when vicky at one point says she liked what she saw up the empire state building in the previous story the chase which is a dalek story peter purvis appears twice at the beginning he plays um a texan with a really bad american accent doing a comedy turn right and later on he appears as stephen taylor who's a stranded astronaut who's been holed up in this mechanoid city for two years so what one of the things she saw whilst at the Empire State Building was Peter Purvis. She liked what she saw. She did, and here he is, stumbling nice, in. I like it. Boom. Boom, stumbling in. She assumes it's a Dalek for some reason. And I love the fact that in order to protect himself and this seemingly defenceless girl, the doctor decides to take his jacket off. And Vicky takes her very flimsy shoe off. So they'll be fine. Yes, I do love how salty the doctor is he he literally says please stop bothering me i i was thinking at this point that the whole thing feels a lot more modern than series one yes it it doesn't feel quite so earnest or stagey i think particularly at the beginning of series one there was still this idea of it having an educational remit so it has two teachers on board and uh every story they would there would be a little bit of science or a little bit of history and they it would be about having adventures, but also about learning. And Ian and Barbara were great characters, but they were quite patrician and quite fuddy-duddy. This is only a year and a half later, but it's it just it feels like it's coming a long way. And the assumption is often that Doctor Who proper really starts in the, the Patrick Troughton era. Right. Uh, that's where it starts to really feel like Doctor Who. But actually, I think it's round about now that it starts to really feel about like Doctor Who. Since we're talking about it, I might as well um, touch upon why this is such a significant story. I think because the show initially started with four leads, and if anything, Ian and Barbara, and specifically Ian, were the lead characters, and Ian was the hero, and he was the you know the he was the handsome young lead doing heroic things and. The Doctor, he wasn't quite a secondary character, but he wasn't the absolute protagonist. It was, we had these two teachers from Earth and we start with them. And it isn't till later on in the first episode that they go into the TARDIS and the, the Doctor and Susan are these two mysterious characters. So we're seeing the whole thing through their eyes. And it went on like that, uh, that it was a, a team of four, but Ian and Barbara were very much the protagonist and the audience focus characters. But they've gone now. And this is really where the whole Doctor Companion dynamic slots in that we then get for the next 24 years and then on going to the, right. new, the new series that the Doctor is the protagonist, the Doctor is, is the one driving the narrative and the Companions are his assistants. 
it'll continue more so as uh, the Doctor becomes less doddery, starting with Patrick Troughton. He's much more energetic. Uh, so he'll get to do a lot, drive the story a lot more. Mm. And the companions will take much more of that role of being slight, slightly more secondary characters. And this is really, uh, I think, where it yes. starts. But there's a I couple agree. of other things that make this like the first modern adventure as well. But we'll we'll get to those. Where did you say you found this, Vicky? Hmm? Just down there. I saw it as soon as I came out of the ship. Yes, it's a bit rusted, but uh, it's not as old as that. 10th, 11th century. Hmm. England. Hmm. Well, there you are, young man. What do you think of that now, eh? A Viking helmet. Oh, uh, maybe. <laughs> what do you mean, maybe? What do you think it is, a space helmet for a cow? Look, hmm? it could just as easily be part of a costume, you know, a toy left here by a child. Oh, rubbish, rubbish. No more so than your theory. Do you think this is why Stephen is saying 10th century? Because the Doctor said 10th or 11th century, so he's just saying... So he doesn't know it's 1066. It, it, might, it might well be, actually... Good, good point, good point. I haven't thought about it. It's a stick up for the purvis. Sorry. Sorry, Stephen. Didn't even mean it. <laughs> Apparently, the TARDIS looks like whatever it needs to to blend in with the scenery, except that this function has been broken. So it remains a police box. The woman uh, in the village, uh, Edith, she's played by Althea Charlton, uh, who we've, who you've met before, not in person, uh, but she was one of the cavemen. Oh, I see. I thought she looked familiar. Yeah, playing quite a similar sort of grubby, tangle-haired kind of role. Yes, yes. And she, she did it very well in Furnace. No, she was really good in this, yeah. She was a very engaging character. And you also get uh, the privilege in this episode to see one of uh, William Hartnell's most famous fluffs. He was famous for his fluffs. William Hartnell and his famous fluffs. It could be miles. It'd be much quicker to go up here. Yes, so possibly it might. But I'm not a mountain goat and I prefer walking to any day. And I hate climbing. We get a lot of Butterworth action. Peter Butterworth is the monk. Even with no dialogue, he's a real... You, like, you can tell everything about him and he doesn't say a word for a long time. It's a mark of his acting, because I think particularly at that time, a lot of the guest stars would come from a theatre background, so they could be quite... They could do a lot of projecting and be a bit stiff. Yes. Potentially, uh, and a bit shouty, whereas Peter Butterworth is very much a film actor. And he wasn't a big film star at this stage. He hadn't yet done his first carry-on. It came out the same year as this. But he'd done a lot of film, and I think you can tell that he has a background in film because he's very very visual and he comes off he he knows how to use his face and hands in close-up so he's very good and yeah you get all this information about him just from watching him rather than listening to anything he's said or anything like that you just you just watch him for hours and I, particularly i love how he looks at his watch and his watch isn't there and he does that repeatedly so that's a nice little bit of business because of course he's lost his watch of course he has yes and then and then they find Stephen finds it and he's like uh you reckon it's not ten? You reckon it's ten sixty six? There's a watch. <sighs> not thinking for a moment that just because there's one time traveller, there can be another one. Nope, exactly. The Doctor's basic knowledge of Earth history tells him that he's in ten sixty six. So he's just going to drink some mead, and he's really excited. He's really, really excited about the battles that are going to happen. Chuckling like a monkey. Oh, he can't wait. He's just mm. totally fanboying <laughs> all he over really the place. Is. And then he tries to get Edith's attention by yelling, Woman, <laughs> Woman. where are you? <laughs> A bit rude. I thought that. Now, if Harold is king, 
And Edward was laid to rest at the beginning of the year, then it must be 1066. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Judging by the appearance of these leaves, late summer. Mm. And a balmy night, a balmy night. <laughs> oh, thank you, my dear. Thank you. This is one of the things about subsequent portrayals of the first doctor. Here's a, a, a theory you, or a comparison you won't hear often. Uh, to me, the first Doctor is a lot like John Lennon, and I shall tell you for why. So the, the, the first Doctor has since been portrayed. He was played by Richard Herndl in The Five Doctors, but he's been since been played by David Bradley. And he tends to be characterised these days as being intensely bad-tempered just really, really foul-tempered and snappy mm. and just always just snarling and snapping at people. And that's his character, just grumpy. And similarly, if you see uh, bi biopics of the Beatles, John Lennon's always like, hey, come on, Epi. Like, he's always just snarling at people. He's furious. He's impatient. He's just in the this dark black mood. He just seems like he's going to punch you at any moment. But if you actually hear tape of john often when you hear him he's actually has a very light voice and is very humorous and very lightly spoken and is very you know he's not he's not a nasty character a lot of the time now i'm just going to raise this so as it's nearer the bass strings than the top string paul's broken at last broken at last paul's broken at last at last at last he's broke today and when you actually go back and watch william hartnell's doctor uh he spends a lot of time rubbing his hands together and giggling. giggling. And he's actually no more... He's a very giggly doctor. Isn't he? And he's actually no more grumpy than John Pertwee or Tom Baker's doctors, who could be really, like, moody as well. They could be light, but they could also be really moody and unpleasant. And so I think he's sort of been a bit mischaracter mischaracterised by the passage of time and possibly also by the first episode, if people only watch the first episode when he is quite a dark character, but... As it goes on, he's a lot more mischievous and a lot more just kind of having a fun time and enjoying the adventure. Good morning, Father. Ah, oh. oh, good morning, my children. Good morning. Oh, so deep was I in my meditations, I failed to see you arrive. You must forgive me. Oh, no, it is we who should ask forgiveness of you, disturbing you no, like please, this. No, please, please. <clears throat> You're always welcome here. Well, this is quite a unique story in the fact that the monk is the villain... He's very, very likeable. He is very, very likeable. And even when we find out why he's the villain, we're like, oh, just leave him to get on with it. Yeah. He's not doing anybody any harm. He's, he's the gentlest of all Doctor Who villains. Like, he, he he's the only one really played as, as sort of like a lovable duffer that isn't like... Because normally, even if a villain is pretending to be a lovable old duffer when he's revealed he will suddenly go all ah doctor you've discovered my secret identity now i must destroy you kind of thing so there's a lot of that so he seems he as far as i know is the only one who is just basically a very mischievous child not aggressive in any way at all he's just he does say at the end he just wants to make things better yeah this is the interesting thing about him that he's he's trying to stop war by yeah. mass murder. <laughs> He's going to murder lots of Vikings, but in order to prevent a war so that the actual civilians can live happier lives. Did you notice anything unusual about episode two? Was I meant to? Well. I've written a load of notes, uh, so I don't, I don't know. The, the first note that I made from episode two was that 
the opening scene is like the breakfast sketch from Malcolm and Wise with a monk. <laughs> yes, fewer grapefruit. But what's uh, what's unusual about episode two, and it's difficult to notice, but William Hartnell doesn't appear. He's 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 got the week off. Oh, I hadn't actually noticed yeah. that. I think it was because of all of the 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 monks and the Vikings and the Saxons, mm. and I was getting all caught up in the horrible historiesness of it all because there was this whole the Vikings are coming, and so obviously I thought of literally, which is a brilliant song from the horrible histories team. So for for a, a very very long scene, I was just like, it was the summer of seven ninety three when we sailed across the Great North Sea, and uh, <laughs> yeah, so that I, w- I was I was I was in my own little well, of course, my own yes. little Viking rock band world. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't notice William Hartnell being there or not being there. To be fair, I think they covered it quite effectively. They had some pre-recorded voiceover, so so you hear his voice because he he pre-recorded uh, some lines, uh, but he never actually appears on screen because he's elsewhere. I didn't know that. I didn't notice that because their 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 recording schedule. They do forty odd episodes a year back in the sixties. So it was quite a gruelling schedule. That's a lot of episodes. Although he was only in his mid-50s, it was still a lot. He was only in his mid-50s? Yeah. Wow. He had a tough paper round. He did. I think a lot of it's acting. This is also the interesting thing about William Hartnell, but it's often said that Patrick Troughton is probably the best actor to have played the Doctor and a lot of the actors were essentially playing themselves, uh, including William Hartnell. But more recently footage of him being interviewed has come to light and it seems like he's very much playing a character and he's very much playing a lot older than he is and a very very different personality so i think now that we've actually got to see what the real william hartnell is like and let's just say you wouldn't want to get on the wrong side of him. This is not just a heightened William Hartnell. This is a definite character that he's playing. But all his co-stars liked him, but when they say they like him, they usually it's usually with reservation. <laughs> I liked him, but yes, exactly. <laughs> like we all love Billy, but oh, <laughs> one of the Vikings looks like Graham Nash. That's what I wrote. That's true. I thought that. Oh, you did. I thought I thought the exact same thing. I did yet. Yeah. It wasn't just me being weird. It wasn't just you being weird. He actually looks like Graham Nash. <laughs> Circa 1971. This episode has a weird tonal shift in it where something unpleasant happens to Edith. Yes, it does. It's never explicitly said what's happened to her, but we kind of know the what Vikings do. And it's very dark for a family tea time show, isn't it? It's it's pretty dark for a family tea time show, and she's left properly traumatized by it. And possibly it's a it's a bit of a, a misjudged event, I think, like tonally for the show, because the rest of it's such a romp. It really is. It's like you can't you can't put a, a, an illusion like that. No, with, with an A, not an I, in the middle of a what's essentially a. a four-part comedy show yeah and and she's so traumatized yes, after the event that it is. doesn't leave you much doubt as what as to what has happened to her she's not just been like yes. roughed up slightly or anything like that so it wouldn't yes, pass muster I, these I days very much agree what i like about edith is that although she's a saxon from the 11th century she's not written as an idiot no she's not she's very very smart and she's she's up on current political events. She gets the measure of the doctor pretty much straight away, I think. She, she does. She doesn't take any nonsense from him. She's got a better idea than the men of what's actually going on. She kind of restrains them from just going off 
half cocked and butchering whoever. Did you notice at the beginning of that the beginning of episode three, the recap was entirely different from the end of episode two? Yes, I did. It was a whole different rug I got and everything. Really confused. See, back in these days, and I found this quite interesting. We're used to TV shows being edited, but back in those days, there was almost no editing at all. So the recaps were almost always restaged. Uh, rather than just edited mm. in from last week's episode, they just restaged them. The opening titles were fed in live, so it was, we're eff- effectively watching a live play. The sound effects were fed in live. The stock footage, so when they're looking down at the the ocean, all the stock clips of the ocean crashing against the rocks, that wasn't edited afterwards. That was that was fed in. A camera, the the vision mixer would have cut to the camera. Oh. It was all assembled live essentially so all that had to happen later there was like four or five blocks of filming within an episode so they'd just be assembled but there was no very little actual post-production in a way it's almost like stage conjuring that all this kind of all this is actually happening in front of us it's not an it's not an edit Stephen seems very dismissive of vicky who is actually coming out with sensible thoughts she's annoyed and tells him to stop being a div and help her to look for a secret passage and then she finds a loose stone and he says to her who's a clever girl then she should have punched him in the ghoulies i think stephen is feeling quite emasculated isn't he i I mean he probably is but Mm. not that i'm sticking up for this kind of behavior i hasten to add don't say things like that to a lady certainly not to a liverpool girl good grief i love the monk's um to-do list his pro his progress chart it reminded me of, uh, you know, that episode of Father Ted where uh, Ted has made a chart for Dougal about uh, things that are real and things that are not real. And <laughs> yes. um, uh, Darth Vader's on the list of things that aren't real. <laughs> it, it, it reminded me very much of that. I like the very final thing on his to-do list is meet King Harold. I know. What a fanboy. <laughs> so the previous... Uh, story to this, which was uh, The Chase, which was a, a Dalek one, is also ostensibly a comedy episode, but it's not very good. I don't know if this is a controversial opinion, but rather than being funny, it just isn't taking itself seriously, which is different. Yes. And I find it when you get shows doing a comedy episode and all it's doing is not taking it seriously itself seriously i find that quite painful to watch and it can be a bit of a drag yeah i get what you're saying but this is actually funny fun to watch and it is taking itself seriously but it's also making an effort to be funny rather than just going oh we'll have a Dalek slurring its words because daleks don't normally do that so uh because things like the twilight zone if you sit, sit down to watch a Twilight Zone and you've switched all the lights off and you've got a nice cup of cocoa and it turns out to be a comedy episode, mm. it's just uh, just like crushing disappointment because they're never funny and it's not what you want from the Twilight oh. Zone. You want mm, you want William Shatner sweating in a car in the middle of the desert somewhere. And uh, I'm sorry, I, I don't <laughs> want William Shatner sweating anywhere, thank you. But you don't want, just, yeah, just something being zany for the sake of being zany and passing that off as comedy and and if you're going to make fun of yourself make fun of yourself in a a way that it doesn't feel like you're making fun of the audience for liking the thing yes there is that isn't it don't insult us and i love the uh clouds projected onto the ceiling 
the, the clouds rushing past so it's actual proper moving clouds that they have projected above their heads. Yeah, it's lovely. It is. It was really nice. In fact, to to the extent that uh, a couple of times I thought, oh, maybe they might even be filming outside, mm, but obviously No, they not yet. Uh, but, you know, it was they, 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 they did really well. And I really enjoyed... There's a, a lovely little moment where the Doctor puts on the monk's habit and the monk says to him, oh, it suits you. And just for a moment, the Doctor looks flattered. Until he just he realizes that he he's in the middle so of it. He's so proud of himself. <laughs> he does just for half a second. He just gets a little Oliver Hardy style twiddle of the the cowl, and then remembers actually he's supposed he's to be quite stern. And, oh, thank you. <laughs> now, the doctor came out with a line yeah. around the uh, "it suits you" line, um, and he said to Peter Butterworth, "No more monkery." <laughs> And I, I like write that, that one on a down as well. Please. <laughs> yes, and no more monkery. No more monkery. <laughs> uh, and then, then we find out that the monk's got a tardis. Ding, ding, ding. The, epi- the the cliffhanger to episode three is, I think, it quite an underrated cliffhanger in Doctor Who lore, because up until this point, as far as the viewers are concerned, the Doctor and Susan are unique. They're the only ones from the Doctor's race that we've ever seen on screen. And they're not known as Time Lords at this point, and they're not known as Gal- Gal- Galileans. They're not known as Gallifreyans at this point. They're just they're just uh, the mysterious Doctor and Susan, so they're from the Doctor's race, and that's all we know. So for viewers at home in 1965, for them to go into the sarcophagus, into, the, into a TARDIS, must have been absolutely mind-blowing yeah. for viewers back then. I, th- I think so. I think that would have been beyond the last thing they were expecting mm. to see. I mean, they would def- they would definitely have been expecting some kind of a secret room or something when they when they saw that there was like some kind of a secret passageway in the sarcophagus, but they would not have been expecting another TARDIS because there was only one TARDIS. And watching it, I sort of put myself in the nineteen sixty five headspace, and it gave me a little bit of chills down the spine, mm. imagining because it changed the show. It was a game changing. It was a show changing moment. This sudden revelation that there are other members of the Doctor's race that he can encounter. And I think he is characterised very much like the Doctor as well. He, but he's actually quite Patrick Troughton-like, even even though there's no Patrick Troughton yet in that context. Mm. He has similar mannerisms and a similar kind of look to him, I think. Um, but oh. he, it, they've definitely characterised him in a sort of Doctory way. He's a similarly sort of eccentric character. Yes. But it's, it, is the, it is the moment that changes Doctor Who forever. And with it, it creates, and this is the third point that makes this uh, a significant story, it creates the pseudo-historical. So when Doctor Who started, when it set out, it was divided into two very specific and deliberate genres. So there were the science fiction ones, like the Daleks, and then there there were the historical ones, like the Caveman one, and they said they did the Aztecs, they did Marco Polo, Um, a bit later they do Highlanders. But this is the point at which the pseudo-historical is invented, which would go on after, because the pure historicals didn't last much longer. And what would go on after the beginning of the Patrick Troughton era would be the pseudo-historical where they would go back into uh, a historical period but there would be some kind of science fiction conceit in it. It's Vikings and Saxons but it's got another Time Lord in it as the 
antagonist. Mm. So this is another moment, this is another thing that changes Doctor Who forever and a thing that's going on and a thing that I think now you wouldn't really have a a genuine historical. So they've done lots of historical adventures in the new series as well. Uh, And probably they've got a bit bigger budget and a bigger scope for exploring history, but they... Even the Rosa Parks one, they they put an alien meddler in it, which personally I think that was tonally a mistake. I was wasn't keen on that element of it. I think they should have left that one as a pure historical. But they do always insert some kind of science fiction conceit in there. I think just to keep it as a science fiction show, for better or for worse. But this is where that idea is first introduced. I hadn't thought about it until he said it because although I did say at the outset that I didn't, I kept trying to get into. Doctor Who and fail. I was I'm 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 the person who liked Jodie Whittaker. Um, yeah. No, I, I I love Jodie Whittaker anyway. She's lovely. Uh, and I so so I did see. I think I saw most of the first series, uh, but then then that was it because yeah. I mean, I had tried. I gave it a really good go, but it, but yeah, I I think I quite liked the idea of of the fact that that it was that it was a, a Nazi alien. Uh, that was trying to, you know, keep keep the uh, the black people from having any kind of freedoms or any kind of equality, etc., etc., etc. Because it it fits in very well with what I know of the character of of Doctor Who, and, and obviously there is, you know, I, I I don't consider myself a fan in any way, and I don't know very Not much yet. But I but I believe that that the Doctor's overriding feeling toward the inhabitants of earth is that yeah they screw up a lot but essentially they are good people and they are yes. worth saving and they are worth helping uh so that's I, so I, I think that's why for me that the fact that the alien was the evil was the evil baddie nazi and not the humans gave the doctor more of a more of an impetus and more of a motivation to to protect the the humans who who weren't necessarily suffering suffering directly mm. as as a result of the what what was happening to the black people at the time of the civil rights movement, the idea that racism, bigotry as a whole, you know, and, and any kind of bigotry, um, whatever it is, is the the idea that I, that that I got from from that particular episode is that it's not human. Bigotry is not human. Right. Okay. It's it's something else. It's it's it's, it's another force entirely, uh, because essentially humans just want to get on with their own lives and and support each other and help each other. Humans are at their very core uh, a, a social a, a social being, and a social beings only work when we help each other, which which is why the alien the alien thing worked for me. It worked really well for me, but I but sort of my personal view of that was just that it was maybe just a bit too recent and a bit too raw to add science fiction to i, I get i get that the, the actual stuff dealing with rosa parks on the bus the actual moment i thought was dealt very sensitively and very well because they had ryan mm. there um so the uh the two white characters the doctor and graham looked incredibly uncomfortable with the whole thing and that you could tell that their their hearts were breaking, that they couldn't intervene. But Ryan was having an entirely different set of emotions and he was feeling whole other things on the bus, seeing the whole thing um, play out. So that was really well done. 
but I yes, I, personally, I think, and maybe it did need that kind of simplification. But personally, for me, I kind of felt that sort of dealing with the actual bigotry that was going on there was enough of an antagonist without having a sort of alt-right Teddy Boy James Dean character coming in there as well. But anyway, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so we see at the beginning of episode four, um, Vicky and Stephen rummaging through the monk's TARDIS and I think it's quite magical that scene just the fact that it's not that it's not just that they've looked through the doors and gone OMG it's another TARDIS but they actually take time to look through it and they look through all his collected treasures and they spend time in there and there's something particularly magical about that I think I don't really know what yes I can't quite put my finger on it but also what I think what is interesting is that at this stage TARDIS is still the name of the Doctor's time machine. So although Vicky says the monk has a TARDIS, uh, what becomes clear from the dialogue is he doesn't. He has a time machine. Only the Doctor the doctor has the TARDIS because that's its name. So it is not a TARDIS. No. Uh, so later on they would become TARDISes and they would all be TARDISes and that would be the name for that particular machine. The TARDIS has a name and it is TARDIS. The Doctor seems not to know the word sarcophagus for some reason. I like the monk says it's it's a Saxon sarcophagus, and the Doctor says, Saxon, what? And then later he he does, he practically does air quotes as he says. Yes, well, tell me, uh, how does one exactly get into this uh, sarcophagus? Hmm? <laughs> Hammer and chisel? <clears throat> this sarcophagus, whatever that is. It's so-called. <laughs> so-called sarcophagus. <laughs> Another, uh, I hope these aren't boring you, but another Doctor Who lore mm. point that I found interesting um, and a thing that rarely happens in Doctor Who going forward is that we find out that the monk is from 50 years in the Doctor's future. Oh, yes, yes. So normally in Doctor Who, when they talk about fellow Time Lords, they all seem to be contemporaries and they don't, they're time travellers, but we don't really consider Gallifrey having its no. own timeline. So we don't really consider, oh, no, I haven't met him because no. he's from way in my future. Although the uh, monk does refer to the Doctor's TARDIS as a modern police box. Also, the first Doctor likes the ladies. Oh, yes, he's quite Isn't a flirty lady. And after she's walked off somewhere, he says... He say, Just a charming woman. Mm, charming. Uh, and yes, this is a first Doctor thing. This isn't something we'll see again until David Tennant, this, this um, having an eye for the ladies. It has a little bit of a romantic side to him, which is nice, oh. yeah. When... The doctor finds out what he's up to, um, and he's like, "You can't do this. This is terrible. This is this is uh, immoral. This is wrong in all of the possible ways, etc., mm. etc." Et uh, and the monk's like, "Yeah, but it's more fun my way." Uh, I mean, I was like, "Well, yeah, actually, fair, fair point, fair point, well made." Um, he just wants to improve things and, you know, stop certain wars and other people in charge and stuff like that and the the doctor the doctor's not happy uh so he he just wants people to be able to see shakespeare on television that's all he wants is that so much to ask i don't think so but the doctor takes precautions to stop the time meddling and he shrinks the tardis by taking his dimensional control which sounds very painful and i wrote the word Yikes. The unkindest cut of all. Even though the monk was intending to nuke 
several boatloads of Vikings and commit mass murder. I still feel really sorry for him at the end, and he seems properly upset. I did. He really was upset. I mean, to be fair, if, if I was stuck in 1066, I'd probably be quite upset too. The very, very end is exceedingly strange. The bit with the superimposed faces. Oh, yes. Yes, I remember that. And that's the thing that had never happened before or since. And it all almost seems to be recognising that Doctor Who is never going to be the same again and this is a brand new mm. era and a brand new way for Doctor Who to be going forward and the, the three of them are looking off into the future. Yes. And we've left the old way of the show behind and we're, we're, we've got this new way for it to be. So time for our regular questions. And so, first up, which were your favourite and least favourite characters? I like the Doctor. Good. Because he's very grumpy. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that would appeal to you. He's probably my favourite because he's 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 grumpy and giggly and very sarcastic. Uh, so that's like uh, the holy trinity of things that I particularly like in a character. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I like I liked him. Um, obviously, I like Vicky because you know Secret Scouser. Um, I think possibly my worst character was um, Edith's husband. Wolf. Whose name? Renaissance. Yeah. Yeah. Who was? He was just. He was so suspicious, and it wasn't even like he was just suspicious in a sort of hmm. These people are up to no good. He was like actively out there trying to kill people and. You know, he just he just went a bit too far, and he should have just taken like two minutes to have a chat with somebody and and to calm down a little bit, and it would have been all right. I think. I just think he was. I just think he was just a. He just needed. He just needed to sit down and have a cup of tea. He did. Is what I'm saying to you. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, for me, it's very difficult to choose on either category because I think is all the main characters are very good. I think William Hartnell is particularly mm. good in this. I could watch Peter Butterworth for hours just doing things, just doing business, not even necessarily yeah. yes. um, doing plot stuff. I could watch him for hours. Um, Vicky is my favourite First Doctor companion. Stephen's a bit annoying, but he's very good. They're a good match. Uh, Edith is good. It's difficult to choose. And again, there are no... Uh, there are a few bland Saxons and the Vikings are a bit bland, but there's no one that stands out as being particularly terrible either. What is your favourite and least favourite element or scene or bit or part? I don't know. I think because so much of it did remind me of horrible histories, I I, I, I liked <laughs> I liked quite a lot of it. <laughs> because, it, it you know, the, the, there was a whole lot of, uh, well, yeah, we're, we're Vikings, we're here to, uh, we're here to raid your monasteries. We we love how monks just don't fight back, etc. <laughs> yeah. The Vikings at first attempted some sort of Scandinavian accent, and then they decided very quickly between themselves while this was being filmed that neither of them could do a Scandinavian <laughs> accent. So like their opening lines were a very bad Scandinavian yeah. accent, and then it was like, do you know what? We're just going to go back to our pee, uh, and uh, and and that's what they that's what they did, uh, and and I think that was a wise move. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that, that that little decision was, was probably the moment I'm most grateful for. Worst moment was by far Stephen saying to Vicky, uh, who's a clever little girl, oh, my God, I would have, act- 
I would have actually brained him. I would have. And I wouldn't even be sorry about it. Ah. So the regular question at this point is, would you watch it again? But uh, as we are covering more Doctor Who at a later date, I'm afraid you have no choice. But would you choose to watch it again for leisure? Yes. Excellent. And do you think you might go back to the beginning and carry on through? I would. I would definitely, because I really like William Hartnell. I want to. I want to know what happened to Fingy Nugent and what's it? Yeah. Curly Larry and Mo. <laughs> yeah, Hopper Chico Groucho. I need. I, I want. I want to know what happened to them. I'm. I'm really worried about them. Yeah, and it is definitely worth watching. It. It's. It doesn't. Doctor Who doesn't necessarily have a story arc as such, but it is very interesting watching progress of the series and how it develops and evolves mm. as it goes along it'll be interesting to find out what you think but we will be revisiting uh, another doctor who and we'll we'll do a patrick troughton adventure next very nice thank you once again for joining us on an adventure it's uh, been quite a milestone this one because i know we that adam and i have both been looking forward to finally getting to doctor who uh, so it's really nice to, to finally get the first the first Doctor Who episode in the camp. Uh, if you would like to get in touch with us, we are always happy to hear from everybody. Our Twitter account is at retro, retro underscore tube. We're tearing up this place tonight. Literally. We're going to set this sleepy town alive. We'll kill and steal and burn and drink Cause us Viking don't care what you think Or if you would like to email us, our email address is retrotubepodcast at gmail.com And uh, we're always happy to hear from you If you've got anything at all that you'd like to say about the show uh, Whether you whether you like it, if there's things that you think can improve, etc, etc, etc Next week it is my go uh, to introduce an episode of or two of something to my good friend Adam, and I have chosen. What have I chosen, Adam? Because Hancock. we've changed our minds about twenty-five times. On I this. think it's Hancock, isn't it? We're going to be watching 1961's Hancock. I'm very excited about this. Aside from that, um, I've been Heather. He's been Adam, and I would like to say cheerio to all of you. And remember. No more monkery. This is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. My folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. Don't talk to strangers, don't play on the farm, and don't go to Almondby. Heather's on-off boyfriend Stephen has gone to the mysterious village of Almondby. He went for two weeks, 
and no one has seen him in six months. The only trace of him which remains is his voice, distantly calling for help, drifting across the fizz of shortwave radio. With a couple of friends in tow, Heather sets off through a warped, distended version of the English countryside, baking in perpetual summer, to track Stephen down, and to find out for herself why everyone says, don't go to Almondby. Author Eric LaRocca called Lost in the Garden eerily enchanting and profoundly inventive, a dreamy and unsettling masterwork. This is one of the freshest and most spiritually rewarding novels I've read in quite some time. And author Matt Wazilowski described it as like trying to recall a troubling and beautiful dream. It's like peering through a wound in the world, sorrowful and uncanny and utterly stunning. This book is magnificent, like nothing I've ever read before. Thank you, Matt and Eric. Lost in the Garden by Adam S. Leslie, published by Denink Books, priced at ten ninety nine. Look for the pink and white cover.